It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, and we are going to get in a fight over Google, Apple, and the iOS cookie incident. That and a, a look at why Anonymous may or may not be able to take down the Internet next month. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 341, recorded February 22nd, 2012, The Anonymous Threat. Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring the EcoBoost engine with turbocharger and direct injection. Look for EcoBoost on the 2012 Explorer and Edge, the 2013 Escape, and at Ford.com slash technology. Time to protect yourself online with security. Boy, boy, there couldn't be a better time for this show. Security now. Steve Gibson is here, the explainer in chief. And uh, well, first of all, welcome, Steve. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Leo. Our our recorded audience don't know that you and I have spent the last thirty minutes talking about coffee before and, we press the record button. And we're feeling so good now. And I'm, you Buzzing. know, we're a little self conscious about whether they wouldn't have, <laughs> they would not have enjoyed our our exploration as much as we did but let, uh, let us know oh well let us know yeah. tell us more coffee or less i tell you the chat room is going crazy with recommendations and <laughs> suggestions because there's something about geeks and caffeine where they just it goes oh. it just it merges together and it all started because i saw steve's ginormous cup look at the size of that thing and i thought somebody's got some coffee today ah, ah. I and i love it leo ah. There's something about so coffee, and we and we 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 we. I I believe we are now of the opinion coffee is good for you, not bad for you. Oh, it is good. The not only the caffeine, but it turns out now they're finding that the because coffee bean you know has a plant origin, the plant based chemicals are believed to have additional health benefits aside from this wow. the the pure stim effect. Yeah, the so, the so called polyphenols. That the coffee contains. Now, this is, uh, was a week, boy. Uh, in the last three weeks, I would say, have been not security. You know, sometimes we get weeks where there's just lots of hacking and stuff. And uh, and then this week was all about oh. privacy. Oh, my God. Have you seen all this Google stuff yes. happening? Yeah, yes. I got, we got it all covered here this week. We'll talk about that. And then and then there's a huge story. The, uh, the folks at Anonymous, whoever that is, it could be a guy named Jason who lives in Surrey. We don't know. But whoever that is has said they're going to take the Internet down. A posting appeared on Pastebin, which is a way of anonymously putting things up and then sharing a link, uh, which I will share with our listeners, um, stating the intent by the infamous anonymous group who everyone takes very seriously now. Yeah. In fact, I've got a really interesting story from the director of the National Security Administration, the NSA, worrying about Anonymous's growing capabilities. So this is not something anyone ignores when they say this. You know, they knocked off 
Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal when during the whole WikiLeaks deal, when those payment processors announced that they would stop processing payments for WikiLeaks, Anonymous just took them down. They, they were blasted off the Internet for a, a substantial length of time. And the RIA, RIAA has had continuing problems and so forth. So they're now saying they're going to take the entire Internet down on March 31st. So I thought, well, let's not wait to talk about this because, you know, we have more than a month now. And, uh, and so then, then there has been some follow-up with people claiming to be anonymous saying, no, that's not us. And, of course, the problem is if you're truly anonymous, you have no way of – I mean, there, there, I guess there ought to be like a, a – a, they, they ought to use PKI. They, they ought to have a, a way of signing their things so, you, so that it could be proven that it's them. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, so even if this was a bogus posting, uh, trolling, as they have said, not from them – it doesn't make the question any less significant and interesting, and that is, is it possible to take down the Internet? And they're talking about doing a denial of service on the Internet's root servers, the root DNS servers, which is arguably the single focus point of the Internet. I mean, we all need DNS in order to, as we know, resolve domain names into IP addresses. So I thought this was a great occasion for us to examine the technical feasibility of launching a denial of service attack against the Internet's roots, root DNS servers. That's what we're going to talk about today. Can Anonymous take down the Internet if they wanted to? I, I, I guess there's no point in saying who the heck are they or is they or, you know, what what is I anonymous? I think they call themselves a hive. One of the one of the postings I saw in Twitter uh, with them saying that's not us was, you know, that them saying, you know, the you know, the hive is not going to do this. This is a bogus posting. It's like, oh, OK, well, huh. be a hive. Yeah, but that's the problem. How do we know who? who yeah. Who is they? I mean, if you're anonymous, who knows? Um, all right. Well, let, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's get to that uh, right now. I have a, a Ford commercial, which uh, I will do, uh, you know, sometime in a few minutes. I do want to kind of you have some other things to talk about. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, two important things re- relating to last week's discussion of this whole um, the the discovery that there was so much collision among the prime numbers that were being generated which are the basis for public key technology on the web. Well, we'll remember that an analysis, an, an academic analysis was done by um, a group of researchers who looked at the public keys and, and saw a surprising level of collision among them. Well, first of all, I don't know what I was thinking. I just misspoke. I mean, which is just, you know, a, a classic brain fart is what you'd have to call it, where I talked about how the certificate authorities had to do a better job of generating prime numbers, which is not how it works at all. How many times have we talked about the fact (laughs) that what they do is sign our public key? We generate the the public and private key, and the, the 
essence of the elegance of the system is that the private key, which is to say the prime numbers, which we choose, never leaves our control, never needs to. We generate the public key from the two prime numbers. We send that off along with verification of our, of our identity to the certificate authority that then signs the public key, thus blessing it and proving that we're the people who have the public key. So, so this actually makes the problem a little more worrisome because that doesn't that means there isn't a single point of like heightened responsibility where we could say oh well as i in a bonehead fashion did last week like all all we need is for the certificate authorities to do a better job generating the certificates they don't all they do is sign the ones we provide them which means that what this tells us is that the i mean the individual servers or machines that that people who generate the so-called CSR, the certificate signing request, which is what's sent to the certificate authorities, all of those machines are where we need them to be doing a better job of choosing random prime numbers, which are then aggregated, uh, you know, multiplied together in order to generate the the matching public key. So so that's sort of, uh, that's like, oh, okay, that's more of a problem. So that's one. The second thing that I, that I missed, and actually a, a, a buddy of mine, an online friend, Paul Byford, who uh, goes by the handle Sparky in our news groups and has become a sort of a long-term contributor, he said, Steve, you forgot about the Euclidean algorithm aspect of this. And it's like, oh, of course I did. And, and that needs to be discussed mostly because it's just so cool. So Euclid figured out like it, 300 BC that it was there was a cool way of finding the greatest common divisor also you know the GCD also the greatest common factor the GCF same thing basically of of any two numbers and I, I really recommend that our listeners go take a look at Euclid's algorithm um, on Wikipedia, because Wikipedia has a very nice treatment of it. This is not rocket science. You don't have to have a degree in math. And it's not, it's, I mean, it, what's so cool about it is how simple it is. It's a, it's sort of a construction based algorithm. Remember, this is 300 BC. So he didn't have access to advanced <laughs> math. He had rocks and all that. <laughs> You know, and and remember, like construction things, like when we were learning in geometry, how to form the chord of a circle, or you know, like how to inscribe a an, uh, an isosceles triangle in a circle, where you basically just sort of do things with you know a compass. This is sort of like that. The idea is you have two numbers, and it, and, it, and on Wikipedia they show a, they have a beautiful little diagram where they sort of explain graphically how this algorithm works where where you sort of you take the shorter if you think of the numbers as lengths you take the shorter of the two and and subtract that from the longer until the result of the subtractions is smaller so that you can't subtract anymore then that gives you a certain length 
Then you apply that against the other one similarly, and you go back and forth until you can't go anymore. And that's the, and, and then that is the, uh, the way you're able to find the greatest common divisor. It's just this incredibly simple, very clever system. But think what that means in terms of public keys, which are the product of two primes. It means you don't have to find two public keys that are the same. You can All you need to see is whether two different public keys have a common, greatest common divisor, which is prime. So... And and since the public key is a product of two primes, you, you you basically you take all the public keys and you apply this Euclid's algorithm against every pair, even if they're different. So it's not that they have to be the same; it's that if they if if two different public keys share one prime number. This algorithm instantly, I mean easily, finds the common prime because that will be the the greatest common factor that these two public keys share. And once you've got that prime, of course, you divide that back, you you, you divide the public key by, by one factor, and that gives you the other. So you can crack the public key, the, you can crack the private keys of both websites if they happened to share a common prime. And, and thus the title of the paper, which was, it, it, the title of this academic paper was um, uh, Wit was right, um, Ron was wrong. And, and so what their point was that is that Okay, Whit Diffie was the guy who came up with a a public key system that only used one secret. Ron Rivest, who is the R of RSA, he uses the two primes. The point being, you're you're in much worse shape if you have two secrets, meaning these two prime numbers, than if you only need one secret, and so. And so, and so what they were saying was that the fact that it is so trivial to take, to take two products of primes, which are to say the two public keys, and, and ins- I mean, almost instantly find their greatest common factor dramatically weakens the, uh, the fundamental security of our public key infrastructure in the in the situation of there ever being a chance of sites using the same prime and what's been found was sites are stumbling on by pure chance because their random number generators are not very good they're stumbling on the same primes multiplying them together and then it turns out if you analyze a large database of public keys you find many more collisions than was ever expected before. So that is, you know, really cool. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Not good news, but just such an elegant 
you know, hack essentially on something that we assumed was going to be much more secure than it's turned out to be. Okay, so Google. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Um, <clears throat> one thing I needed to say was that Google is working on a password generator for Chrome. I, there, I, I would yes. presume it's something like Super it's Gen like LastPass. Pass or Last. Oh, you mean they're going to be a password uh, storage uh, thing yes. too? Yes, oh. they will generate and store and cloud Ooh. sync. So it's all it's the whole LastPass enchilada essentially that will be built into Chrome because Google recognizes that. I mean, in in their own blog posting about this, they say, "Okay, so passwords are not what we wish we had. We need something better." But they're, they're all that we have at the moment, so let's make them as good as we can in the short term. So essentially, they recognize that LastPass is a great solution, and they're going to build something like it natively into Chrome. It's, hmm. it's, you know, it's not happened yet, they're, but, but, but they're exploring it, and it looks like you know, they're going to they're gonna do it. So yeah, I, I'm with you, Leo. That's you know, for, for dyed-in-the-wool Chrome users... Um, that's only good news because, because I guess what, what I like about it is that it will expose this technology to a much larger, larger audience. I mean, if everyone in the world were using LastPass, problem solved largely, Mm -hmm. um, but everyone in the world's not, and everyone in the world's not going to, when it, when it gets, if it were built into Firefox, then Firefox users would all have it. If, and when it gets built into Chrome, all Chrome users will have it. And it'll just end up increasing the overall security of, of you know, on behalf of the users of Chrome because it'll just be there. And, you know, we know from all of our experience that what's there matters. Things, things that are there get used. Things that you have to go out and find and, you know, and install and then configure, eh, not so much, unfortunately. I, I just um, thought when I read it, and I didn't read it very closely, that it was going to be something like Super Gen Pass, where it would uh, generate secure passwords for you. But I guess it would have to remember them, or what good would it be? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and cloud syncing is the other thing uh-huh. that LastPass gives us that'll that'll be there too. And so it'll be across all Chrome browsers on all platforms. Right. I mean, I use so, Chrome uh, everywhere, and I use their syncing capabilities yeah. and their password syncing already. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also use other browsers and other platforms and mobile platforms. So I think yeah, LastPass is not going to be out of business. I agree. That's what's really nice about LastPass is I've got it over on Chrome. Right. And suddenly Chrome knows all of my LastPass passwords exactly. too. Speaking of which, um, somebody tweeted. I'm jumping out of order here, but it's we're on the topic, so I will. Uh, um, David Ward, who tweets uh, from Sydney, Australia, said... Um, he said, RE, giving loved ones access to your passwords when you pass on, what about a LastPass OTP left in a safe? Uh-huh. I think that works. And I'd forgotten that about completely. That's a perfect solution. If, if, if you Google LastPass OTP or one-time passwords, remember that another feature of LastPass is that you can generate one-time passwords, which they save encrypted 
in their servers. Um, and what, what, what they do that for is to solve the problem of needing to access LastPass in a public setting, like on a library computer, for example, although I, I don't know that there is any safe way to do that, but still, if there were a keylogger, for example, which could, could log your keystrokes, you would be inadvised, ill-advised to log into LastPass using your normal everyday LastPass master password because the keystroke logger could, could glom onto that and your security would be breached. So you can use, you can pre-generate and carry in your wallet a series of one-time passwords for LastPass to solve that problem. You log in once using it. It will allow you to then access your LastPass account, but you will never be able, in, in, the, act, in the act of using it, you, you, you tear that one up. You can never use that one again. So that's a perfect solution. You, you generate one or more and stick it in, you know, give it to your attorney, stick it in your, your you know, when I die, um, you know, bank vault or, or, or whatever. And that's a way for your loved ones to get access to your accounts. And that then that solves the problem of you of, of and, and this was the point that was brought up last week was, you know, the regular user wants to be able to change their last pass master password periodically for security, which is perfect. They can you can still do that anytime you want to. That does not obsolete your one time passwords, which will live on until they're used. So, you know, David, thank you for bringing that up. That was a great tweet and uh, and a great solution to the problem. Okay, back to Google. That's the good okay. stuff. Now the bad stuff. Uh, <laughs> the good stuff. So, okay, there were two main issues that were brought up um, and got uh, wide coverage. Jonathan Mayer, who we've spoken of before, uh, is a researcher at Stanford University. And he discovered something rather disturbing, which was that Google and three other advertisers were deliberately bypassing Safari's anti-tracking. Um, Safari is, and I love Apple for this, and I love Safari for this, the only browser that has third-party tracking cookies disabled by default. It's just amazing to me. Um, one of the last things I still need to get to, and it's on my very short list of things I need just to wrap up in order to get on to my next big project, is my cookie system. Um, if you go to grc.com slash cookies slash cookies.htm, Leo, um, you will see a still unpublished set of pages with technology that's been actually running now for several years at GRC. Um, last week, we had GRC had 73,356 unique visitors. Of those 73,356 unique visitors, 84.59% of them 
had third-party cookies enabled. So a, almost 85%. Think about that. I mean, the vast majority of people surfing the net still have third-party cookies enabled. Why? Because that's the default setting in all browsers except Safari. And if you scroll down that page, it, um, I'm tracking all of the cookie usage by browser. Are you using cookies to do this? <laughs> no, I guess oh, you yeah. couldn't. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you are. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got some amazing technology. If you, if you look um, at in the block of links at the bottom, look at the, the stats. I think it's at the top link on the third column because I clicked it just before this as I was generating the URL. This is showing it dynamically tracks the statistics of cookie usage by browser version and, and manufacturer. Um, and there's a bar chart, if you scroll down a little ways, um, showing how different Safari cookie usage is than every other browser. Why? Because Safari has them off by default. Only 26 0.65% of Safari visitors have third-party cookies enabled because it's off by default. So, um, so that's, I mean, that's a radical difference demonstrating, once again, the, the importance of default settings. Most people are going to just be using default settings all the time. You and I have a kind of a disagreement on this issue, but... Um, oh, okay. Well, I don't think... So... Uh, Perhaps you might explain why third-party cookies are bad. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, oh, no, and and we don't disagree actually as much. Um, one, one one of the things that we will get to, and I'm glad you brought it up, is okay. So so what? You know how how much does it matter? Is it a big deal? And so well, forth. in fact, a lot of sites won't work. We don't use uh, uh, third-party cookies pretty particularly on our site, but uh, occasionally we do. If you have an ad banner. What a third-party cookie is on our site is you come to twit.tv and there's an ad banner there. That ad banner can set a cookie on your page and use that cookie to determine that you visited the page and so forth. And that's how we get paid. And, in fact, that's how third-party cookies are, in fact, how uh, the Internet monetizes. So yes. I think you could make a case, and John Battelle made this case, uh, that Apple, in fact, isn't doing this for privacy purposes, but to, uh, <laughs> as Apple is wont, keep others from profiting when it's Apple's job to make all the money on Mac users and uh, iOS users. Uh, that's interesting. Anyway, um, I'll just bring that up. Okay. Go ahead. So, What's wrong with third-party cookies? Uh, well, okay. So, um, uh, arguably, I think the user should be informed. I don't that's disagree with I, you with that. I completely agree with you on that. And, and, and so but, I but would setting have... a default, in a way, is, a way of, is not a, f a form of information. It's merely blocking it on their behalf, determining their what they want. Agreed. And so, for example, if, if, if third-party cookies are important to a site for, for its own monetary support, I would have no problem with the site saying, hi there, um, welcome, we're happy to have you, but you've got third-party cookies disabled and we need those in order to get paid. So if you want to use our site's free services, you know, click here to turn on third-party cookies so that our advertisers can know where you came from and can pay us for the fact that you're browsing around our pages. 
And that, I mean, if we had a system like that, and it's entirely doable, but it just hasn't happened yet, then I think the problem is solved. It's, it's, it's a, 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 it would be built into browsers. It would, yes, it would, you know, get in people's face, but be much gentler than no script, which is, you know, the page doesn't work at all, and people are wondering why and so forth. Um, but it just says, for those sites that want to, to ask their visitor to turn on third-party cookies. Now, users could then decide how they feel about that. Savvy people might say, well, you know, I don't really need to be here, and I'd rather not be tracked because, you know, the 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 concern that people have had is that third-party cookies, the whole point of them is that it's not the site that you're visiting. It's the site whose resources the site is presenting, like ads, that then allow profiles to be made of people over time. I know from my own experience that there are people who feel very strongly. I mean, they delete their cookies. They flush their cookies. They, they go through all this work to, you know, for the, they just don't like the idea that they're going to be tracked. Um, it's like, okay, so... So, yeah, yeah, you and I are on the same page that users ought to be informed. And I have no problem with a site saying, hi, you don't have cook third-party cookies enabled. We need them in order to be paid by our advertisers. So please turn them on for, for this site. And that technology exists in all the browsers. You can do per-site enabling of third-party cookies, which solves a problem. Right now, it's just not easy, and it, it ought to be made easy. Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on this. I think that most, the vast majority of people have no idea what a cookie is. And unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of um, uh, paranoia building about cookies. I don't think cookies are harmful in the least. In fact, I think they're yeah. how the Internet works. And I think that blocking cookies, first or third-party cookies, breaks the Internet. And in so, order, in, and and it and people prey on the uh, I think incorrect paranoia people have about cookies. People delete cookies like crazy, as if that's some magic process. <laughs> it right. is not, and it, as you as we have talked about before, it is also does not in any way uh, prevent companies from tracking you. I was going to say exactly, and there are many other ways of of locking on to someone. Uh, still, cookies are the main way. They're the easiest way. They're the most straightforward way. And you could argue, I mean, they, they were built into browsers in order to create this sort of state, in order to create a, a stateful connection to visitors. So, so, yeah, I guess, what, long term, in the same way that scripting is something that you can, you, you can increasingly not live without, Cookies are probably something that you will increasingly need to allow. Turn off cookies and see how the internet works. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can. The good news is you can turn off third-party cookies. It, Apple calls them block cookies from site. Uh, allow cookies only from sites I have. Vi I am visiting. Um, right. And you can, in fact, uh, disable that without any uh, apparent hardship. Although there are some sites, uh, somebody in the chat room said the BBC site will not show videos without third-party cookies. Um, there are some sites that does break. But because because this is so prevalent in on Apple hardware, uh, most sites have found ways around it. And that's what Google was doing in these other ad agencies. Precisely. Uh, and, the, so, the, you know, the question is, uh, why does Apple do that? Is it, are they on the side of the angels and it's... It's merely my opinion that Apple, they do this all the time. They don't want anybody to have information about their users except Apple. 
Well, okay. So, so there, that's there, the there, real there issue. Apple real knows exactly there. where you're going and serves you ads uh, in response. There could be a real reason. They actually do say it's for user privacy. Well, of course they so do. That's what I would say, too, if were I Apple. Okay. So <laughs> that doesn't mean that's why. It just means so what the they way, say. The way their cookie system works softens this a little bit. And this is what I learned from this cookie forensics um, experiment that I did years ago. Because this thing characterizes the exact cookie handling of all browsers. And it turns out no browser is free of actual bugs in their cookie handling, some worse than others. If you, if you in Safari, if you disable third-party cookies, it doesn't simply kill them or stop them. If you had any third-party cookies, they continue to be sent to any third-party site that you visit. So you won't, you won't, it won't accept new ones, but it still transmits any that you have that match that domain. Um, if you are at a third-party site and you have a cookie for that site, that site, that one site, has the, the ability to write cookies to you. So a, a third-party site that doesn't have, that your browser doesn't currently have a cookie for cannot write new cookies. But a, a third-party site that your browser does have a cookie for first will receive it and can modify it, is able to write cookies. So, so in order to, if you were concerned, you'd have to disable cookies in Safari, delete them all, then restart Safari. Because there's also a whole restarting thing that comes into this, whether they're like many browsers still don't obey your requests until you shut them down and start them up again. But the third interesting aspect is... In, in Safari by design. Now, this was removed from WebKit seven months ago, but it hasn't yet migrated into Safari. And that is, if you submit a form to a third-party site, then that third party is allowed, even if third-party cookies are disabled, the response to a form submission to a third-party site is allowed to submit cookies. And that's what Google figured out. So you're saying that WebKit disabled this months ago. Yes. And, of course, Safari is based on WebKit, but Apple did not. Apple hasn't. I don't know if Safari is tracking the current WebKit, but Google took it out of WebKit seven months ago. Google took it out. Yes. So so WebKit is an open-source project that many companies contribute to including google and apple right and their browsers both chrome and safari are based on so exactly but it was google that removed that from the webkit code seven months ago <laughs> in chrome or in all in the webkit open source project in the webkit open so source if you pro- use a webkit browser see the problem is on ios you can't use uh the webkit browser but if you're using the webkit browser on the desktop this trick wouldn't work Correct. But it works on Safari because Apple right. hasn't been pulling, you know, those changes from, from WebKit. So it's still it's still there in, in Safari. So what Google figured out and and 
three other advertisers as well. And this is what uh, Jonathan Mayer at Stanford University caught them doing is they needed to bust Safari's blocking. Google, Google, they, Google needed to bust Safari's blocking of third-party cookies for their plus one feature to work on ads because ads are from third parties and they needed to essentially enable third-party cookies, but they were, they couldn't in, in Safari by default. And it was a problem because Safari has this disabled by default. So as we've seen, more than three quarters of Safari users have third-party cookies disabled. Google didn't like that. So what Google figured out was, get this, Leo, an, a web form in an iframe in an ad can be submitted by JavaScript. And that allows them through this really convoluted mechanism to get a third-party cookie set. And what Jonathan discovered was that Google's code looks at the user agent and they, they he tested 400 different user agents and has a spreadsheet available in his original posting showing showing this that only when the user agent is Safari, any variant of Safari on any of the Safari platforms, then different code is issued which uses this iframe form posting trick, which is then submitted so the user has no interaction needed because JavaScript triggers the submit function of the form in order to get this plus one functionality to work. That's, by the and way, so, very common practice in JavaScript. You test user agent because JavaScript itself has so many bugs that you... So this is not... It sounds like, again, I think it's important not to overblow this it sounds like yes. oh my god they were searching for user agents it's throughout all javascript code that you do this because you always have different code for different user agents that's unfortunately a necessity because javascript is so buggy um and what did google do with this end around were they tracking uh, people as they uh, surfed the net no yes th well no they uh, turned on a plus one button yeah, well, all for we people know who are logged into Google, th this was allowing this was a, exactly this was allowing third party cookies to be to be right. set. And as far as we know, and, you know, uh, it's possible they were doing other stuff, including tracking people's iPhones, I guess. But it was uh, it, in my opinion, it, I think Google's justified. But again, uh, you know, there's there's two sides of this story. I'm just trying to give you both sides. Yeah. Um, what Google's doing is for people who are logged into Google. Uh, is to turn on the plus one button so that you may plus one uh, ads as well as plus one pages. That yes. does not work, just as the Facebook like button does not work if third-party cookies are disabled. Right. And one could say, in fact, that, uh, as, as many do, the like button and the plus one button are invasive on all web pages because as soon as you go to a page with a like button or plus one button, unless you've disabled third-party cookies... Facebook or Google, respectively, know you're there. Right. In fact, we've even talked about it. even if you're logged out on Facebook, apparently the like button still uh, sends a signal. Right. So uh, 
the the real question, I guess, is how nefarious. You know, it, it it does look pretty sleazy to end around to to look at a workaround for something like this. Uh, and I think uh, Google uh, probably should stop doing that. Yes. But on the other hand, uh, and they have they have said they're going to. Yeah, they have said, we're, it, you know, we're sorry. Uh, we'll figure out some other way around this. Right. Um, but on the other hand, uh, companies like Facebook and Google provide uh, some significant services for free, and the way they monetize, yep, yep. is this way. Um, and so it's kind of how, it, yeah, yep. It's kinda the how reason the it's works. free. Yeah. Now, uh, to their discredit, Microsoft jumped on this, and this is part two of this brouhaha. Microsoft said, "Well, um, Google is abusing." Our P3P technology, which is the Microsoft's platform for privacy preferences. Um, uh, quoting from The Verge, which is a, an online uh, news source, they, they, they said just a few days after the Wall Street Journal reported that Google, Facebook and others have been using a work a workaround to bypass the cookie restrictions in Apple Safari and mobile Safari web browsers. Microsoft, now Microsoft now claims that Google has taken similar measures to bypass privacy settings in Internet Explorer. Microsoft says that Google is improperly representing its cookies by using a non-standard P3P cookie policy statement. It claims that Google's P3P policy is actually a statement that it is not a P3P policy, which allows Google's cookies to pass through without being blocked. Um, Google's response to this is also reported by The Verge. Earlier today, Microsoft accused Google of manipulating Internet Explorer's default privacy restrictions in order to, quote, bypass user preferences about cookies, Google has just responded with a lengthy rebuttal, arguing that Microsoft's P3P cookie technology is, quote, widely non-operational, love that phrase, and that the issue has been around since 2002. The response also points to other offenders citing a 2010 Carnegie Mellon research paper that says over 11,000 websites don't use valid P3P policies. Um, and then Google talks about Facebook and Amazon saying that they also are doing the same thing. Now, in this, I, I completely agree with Google. What happened was Microsoft, in an earlier version of IE, entertained disabling third-party cookies also by default. There was a version for a while in beta that had third-party cookies dis disabled by default. Microsoft generated so much flack from doing this by big business that, that just screamed that third-party, that, that, you know, and th th this is years ago. This is, you know, 10 years ago or, or so when... Um, and I don't know, maybe it was I, an early version of IE6, but, but Microsoft got so much flack that they backed off from turning off third-party cookies by default and came up with this bogus approach where a website in the 
in the query headers going to a server can assert what their cookie policy is in a machine-readable header of little three-character tokens. And, and what really annoys me is that if you in IE today, all versions of IE, if you turn up your privacy to maximum such that it says you are blocking third-party cookies. Yet, if a third-party website has a, a specially crafted P3P policy header, IE goes, oh, well, they say that they're going to do good things with your cookie, so we'll let third-party cookies work anyway. So this is an, a complete override over IE's clearly stated policies that the user can control, even on a per-site basis. If a site says, no, no, we're, we're, ha we're nice people, then IE just says, oh, well, in that case, let me have your cookie. So that's what Google is saying. They're saying this is ridiculous, IE allows any site that wants to to override the user's and, and the browser's preferences. So we're doing it, yes. And so is Facebook and Amazon and 11,000 other sites. So that's what that was. What do you think about that? Interesting. Right? Well, it's not a surprise. <laughs> I mean, uh, look, everybody wants to make as much hay as they can out of this because yep. uh, the, 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 the real issue, the very, very significant issue, unfortunately, is this is highly technical stuff. And there's a yep. lot of... Um, issues involved that are very complex and the even the tech press is you know it makes a they're, great they're headline never, yep they're never going to get it right it makes a great headline and so um you know people are i get a lot of accusations whenever i bring this up oh you're biased in favor of google um and i think anybody knows who listens to everything i do that i don't have a bias in favor of google at all or apple um, but I think what, what has to happen is that it, as best we can to this audience, which is highly technical, is to for the audience to understand not merely the hows it happened, but there's there are whys. And, uh, and there's a deeper issue, which is the uh, how the Internet monetizes itself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as, as someone who uh, – I mean, I, I'm kind of above this because we monetize – by ads, which we force you to watch, <laughs> and I'm about to do one, but uh, but you have no choice. So uh, we do have some banner ads, and we are going to start doing more banner ads on the website, and that's where all this starts to happen. That's that's when all this third party cookie tracking and so forth starts to happen, and yeah, it is, I, I it is just, the means that frankly powers the internet. Um, yeah, and you don't. And the good news, Google, I think, is extremely upfront in their privacy policy. And the good news is, if you do not log into a Google account, or if you do not create a Google account, or you delete your Google account, none of this will happen to you. You do have control of this. Uh, this only happens to people who are logged into Google at the time that they're using the browser. Uh, yeah. So people, and why do you log into Google? Because you want to use their free services, chiefly Gmail, but perhaps Google Plus or other services. You can use Google Search completely anonymously, Use that. It's a completely free service. They do not monetize uh, that directly by tracking you. They put ads in the search results, but they do not track the results unless you log into a Google account. So therefore, and I think they've been uh, remarkably upfront about this uh, in their privacy policy, which they yeah, urge see, people to read over and over again. 
I guess the part that I don't get, though, is why third-party cookies have anything to do with monetization. Well, a perfect example is the plus one button. Okay. So, but okay, but that's new. So, for example, if you host ads on 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 Twit, then we when, can't. There's a third party ad on the banner site, right? Those ads are not delivered from Twit; they're delivered from an ad server, which is a right. third party. Right. How? But how do they know that ad was viewed? Because because oh, the, they get hit by the IP address. That's right. Yeah. No, the referrer header right. says. We're serving this ad to right. twit, uh, twit dot, or you know twit, twit TV, and so that's where you get your impression count. The fact that the fact that a cookie wasn't sent with it only really means that this user that's right. doesn't have their cookie. That's right, and and no, that's they a would good like point. so so they would like to know who you were because right. then they can aggregate all the other places you have been and everything they know about you and maybe serve a higher value add to you so it's really a you the argument is it's a user benefit because if you are profiled by the third party then they know not you know that they know you're 75 right. Based on the fact that of you know, right. the medication that you've been looking at, and they're not going to give you a diaper ad, which isn't relevant to you. There and so the well, idea there's is, value to both sides. There's value, of yes. course, to the ad server because they can sell that ad for more money because it's a targeted demographic. So the right. real, I think, the real issue, and and I don't think most people would have a problem or uh, having understood that. I don't think that is a because they're not tracking you personally they don't it's not like they say how can we get an ad to leo laporte uh, i don't believe that ever happens well yeah the argument is that they really do know who we are that there's enough they don't privacy. care but that's not issue that's what they really want to know is what's my age income you know they want to know demographic information that's what's of value to them not my not my name age and social not my social security number you know what i'm saying they don't care about me as an individual it's in aggregate Right. Uh, the, at least uh, my understanding of how ads work. Now, the the real question for people who are worried about this is exactly that: Are they trying to find out something about me personally? Are yeah. they? And and I I don't believe that's the case. Well, people who have worked in the in the in the third party advertising world have said you wouldn't believe how much information they have about people. Of, of course. In fact, there's a great article in the Sunday Times, which I recommend everybody read, about how Target knows know, knew that a teenager was pregnant before her parents did. <laughs> and it's not, by the way, necessarily online behavior. It's right. you know, all it's they're aggregating tons of data about you. Pulling it all together. But yep. again, and I think part of this is a disconnect in in how we interpret the word privacy in the internet age. Um, it isn't really that they cared about that girl and they somehow wanted to know, is she pregnant? That particular girl. What they want to do is identify second trimester customers so they can target particular kinds of advertising. It's higher value ads for a yep. lot of reasons. Read the article. It's fascinating. And it doesn't have anything to do really with online privacy. It's just in general. Um, right. Is that an invasion of privacy? It's not like there's a guy at uh, uh, BBDNO who says, hey, Steve Gibson loves a certain kind of coffee. Let's send Steve Gibson. He doesn't care who Steve Gibson is. That's too right. small. That's too granular. That's not how you make money. 
Maybe the someday. The are huge. Right. Maybe someday Lots. you'll make money selling individually to Steve, but it's much better if I know the three million people who have a burr grinder. That's what I want to know, not the one person. So, right. the, so I guess my question again is, do you feel that people are trying to figure out what Steve Gibson is up to? Like they want to know you. What, what, what I know from lots of discussions in privacy news groups is just it's a creep factor. It's, you know, when, when someone hears, for example, your story that the target knew a girl was pregnant before her parents, some percentage of people are going to get creeped out by that. They're just not, they just don't like the idea. And I understand and, it's your right to be creeped out by it and to protect yourself. Completely agree with that. You should, it, it, and so my point is not that it's, it, you have to make the decision for yourself, but I want people to make the decision based on absolute facts as opposed to the knee-jerk, sensationalistic yes. headlines right. that are, is what is being distributed around. And, and I, and you know, my, for me, I don't think they're, they don't, they don't care about me. It's not like they're peering in my window. Yes, they know a lot of information. There's a lot of information about me in a database with the idea towards sending me targeted advertising. I well, don't find just, that too, particularly intrusive, but maybe some do. And, and just so we're clear, my fascination is just the technology. Right. I get off on how all this stuff works. I love understanding it. And, you know, and, and our agree. listeners yeah. are saying, hey, how does this work? I want to know how it works so that I know what, what, what it means. So, and it's our job. It really is our job just to, to get as much of the information as technically accurately as possible out to you. And then it's ultimately up to each individual how they want to, what they want to do about it. Right. And whether they're up in arms at Google or, or not, or, you know, all of that. So I just want, I, I, and I only, I'll only bring it up because I think that there is another point of view that needs to be expressed about what this stuff is so that you understand fully what they're doing with it and, and why they want it. And we get a lot of free stuff on the internet and that's why. But again, but it's not. Well, I mean, I, it, you, you say it's really not necessary. It's well, well but it's I, necessary I, I, for a certain level of income. Now, I don't know how much it costs yes, Facebook. I, right. I don't know how much it costs Facebook to give me a Facebook page. And so I don't understand the economics of that. They made one billion dollars last year. Um, is that enough to pay for the 850 million users or not? I don't know. They can make a lot more money with more targeted ads. And, and it, yes, I was just I was just going to say it is one thing we do know for sure and that is that ad targeting dr does dramatically increase right. the value per impression. And they may need that. It may not be sufficient just to get the click. That's all we get is the CPM. Yep. Um, but it may be that, you know, the $10 or whatever it is we charge per thousand impressions, that money may be predicated on the fact that the server, ad server, knows more about the advertiser, uh, the, uh, the viewer, than, than I know. I don't know anything. Right. They know it all. So right. um, I just know that we have a certain cost of doing business. We need to be able to charge a certain amount for ads. And uh, I don't think and it's the ads, any... And if the ads you show are, targeted, are of they're more higher valuable. value yeah. to the advertiser, right. then that's good for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think we can say that it's not necessary. We just don't know. Yeah. Uh, and you can opt out. There are plenty of people who watch this show who use ad blockers. Uh, there are plenty of people who, lose it, who listen to this show who don't listen to the ads. Um, you're getting something for free that you're not paying for with your attention. And so I think this is the problem is that 
I don't think people think of their attention as a currency, but it is in fact a currency. Oh, Leo, I, I have I'll confess, I can't watch live television. I just I, I can't. Right. If I didn't if I if I didn't have the ability to jump over commercials, I'd just go crazy. <laughs> right. Right. So let us take a break. You don't have to listen to this if you don't want to. <laughs> Steve will be back in a minute. <laughs> but right now, I'd like to talk about the amazing EcoBoost engine that Ford has designed. Ford is a technology company. And nowadays, I tell you, every company that is in business has to be a technology company. Uh, Ford, of course, one of the you know great brands in the uh, U.S. industrial economy. And the way they've entered the 21st century, I think, is a great model for a lot of companies. They have really done a great job. And a lot of it is because they are making 21st century vehicles. Now, we talk a lot about my Ford Touch and Sync and all of the kind of the consumer electronics. But, you know, what is it that powers a car? It's the engine. They've got hybrid electric, electric, plug-in hybrids. They've got all kinds of engines but many of you still need that gas engine, and Ford is doing everything to make the traditional gasoline engine more fuel efficient without losing power. The EcoBoost engine really is designed to meet fuel efficiency standards but give by reducing the number of cylinders, but give you the same horsepower and torque you'd expect with a bigger engine. They do it with a couple of different technologies. One is direct injection. DI, we'll call it, it produces a cooler, denser charge that generates more power per drop of fuel. Uh, and then they have turbocharging, which is a, a technology that's been around a long time. But Ford did something clever. Instead of some, a single big turbocharger, you know, the, that turbine is spun up by the uh, uh, engine's exhaust. And it's used as a compressor to compress the air going into the cylinder, which gives you a lot more, a lot more power. But there has been always traditionally a lag with uh, turbines. Uh, because it takes a while to spin up. You know, this physics of it, it just takes a while to spin it up. They did, they're clever. Two smaller turbochargers which spool up almost instantly, giving you great low-end torque responsiveness, virtually no turbo lag, and amazing gas mileage. EPA estimated 28 highway miles per gallon on the 2.0-liter EcoBoost and on these large utility vehicles, on the Ford Explorer, the 2012 Explorer, and the 2012 Edge. 28 miles a highway gallon. The 2013 Escape is coming out in 2012. They're going to have a 2-liter engine and a 1.6-liter engine, which will give you even better gas mileage. Uh, it's how Ford is giving consumers what they want and still doing what they can to uh, to improve our environment. I think it's just fantastic. Find out more at this website. It's really a great site, Ford.com slash technology. It's all there. Or better yet, drive one at a Ford dealer near you. Um, I'm very proud of our association with the Ford. I just, I just think they do great stuff, and it's a great company. And as I've come to know them, including the CEO, Alan uh, Mullally, I've just really realized they're a values-driven company, and they really care about getting it right. Moving along, Mr. Gee. So I did notice that Gizmodo picked up on the spray-on antenna story. Ah, I was wondering if we'd hear more about that. Yeah, I haven't. There's no no additional information so far. Um, I've watched a lot of background Twitter going around. They have patents. The apparently this this was it Cham something Cham. Yeah, was, can't remember the name of the site, yeah. but I don't think it's Sham. Um, <laughs> it uh, is spelled C H A M, so there is some. It is. Yeah. Um, but apparently they are a government contractor, and they've got a bunch of patents on stuff. So, you know, I guess we'll just kind of keep our our uh, 
antenna up, so to speak, and, uh, <laughs> and Cam- see if we hear more from them. Chat room says it's cam tech like chameleon. C- c- cam tech. Oh. That makes sense. Like chameleon because they're painting this. It's bizarre. Cool. Bizarre. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. I found an interesting site I wanted to share with our listeners. Builtwith.com. B-U-I-L-T-W-I-T-H.com. And also trends.builtwith.com. Uh, what this is, is it's a search engine that that goes out and inventories all of the sites on the Internet and looks at the technology that the sites are using. What versions of PHP? Uh, are they using Flash? Are they using Shockwave? Are they using real, you know, real media and so forth? And their trends page is really interesting because you can see things like the the ebb of the use of Flash over time, where sites are sure enough moving away from from using and relying on Flash to an increasing degree. So anyway, I just thought it was a kind of a cool site that uh, that came across my radar that I wanted to share with our listeners. Builtwith.com. Um, and in sad news, Chrome has lost its side tabs. I went looking for oh. them the other day. Oh. You know, you could go to about colon settings or about colon config or something and turn those on. Well, apparently it was only just an experiment. Um, they said uh, on their blog, blog posting about this, as an experiment, side tabs were not a success. A small number of people really passionately loved them, you know, count me, but they ended up not being compelling enough to make the cut. We torture ourselves over stuff like this. It comes down to painful decisions about keeping Chrome lightweight. We know that a feature like this is really important to some number of users and Chrome developers, exclamation point. But at the same time, we have to continually cut and trim, knowing that those cuts will annoy people so that Chrome doesn't turn into bloatware and satisfy no one. Now, if if Google had said, will annoy Steve Gibson, would you have felt your privacy was invaded? Because I think that's who they were thinking of. <laughs> they said, we do hope to have a better solution to okay. the I have too many tabs problem okay. someday soon. But side tabs wasn't it. Yeah. I'm really sorry that we, we let the experiment linger too long. It meant that many of you became dependent upon it, <laughs> making the end of the experiment an even bigger pain than we wanted it to become. Wow, they knew that there were people out there who... Oh, I'm, oh there, was bad, there was a lot of flack yeah. from that. And um, anyway, I also ran across something called Tabs Manager for Chrome that I wanted to give people... A heads up on it. I don't know what happens when you have too many tabs on Chrome because I'm not yet a full-time Chrome user. I'm still over on Firefox. Firefox with like 58 tabs open at the moment. Um, actually, I do know that that is the number that I have open. Um, um, <laughs> what did you count them, or is there a number there? No, there there's a a, a tab session manager, oh, and funny. so when I sometimes I'll like just save all the ones I've got because right, I you know right, I don't right, want right. a crash to to cause me to lose them. I mean, I just, I just use them as bookmarks. They're like, I mean, they're like things I want to get back to when I have a moment to, when I surface from coding, I'll like read a few pages that I've, you know, just didn't want to interrupt myself to read. So it's like, a whole, just like, you know, bookmarks on the internet is, 
is, you know, in that fashion, is managed that way. Anyway, this tabs manager, two words, tabs manager for Chrome, it just puts a little button up on your button area of Chrome. And when you click it, it gives you a nice listing of all your tabs that are organized and you can drag them around and see them easily. So it's sort of like having the tabs all there because it's easy then to click on one and access a tab. So anyway, I'm glad I I want Chrome to solve the problem. If they come up with a better way than actually having tabs on the side, hey, that's fine as long as there's some way to deal with it. Because many people like myself organize our web browsing in our lives around mass quantity of tabs. So figure out how to do that, Chrome or Google. That would be great. My suspicion is Google is going to invent something besides tabs that they will say is a better way. Yay. You know, that, that they're, they're trying to solve this. That would be, I'd be, I'd be happy yeah. to have them do that. And I, speaking of happy, uh, a subject Spinrite made my wife cry. <laughs> no, my atten- when I when I caught my attention on February eighth, Andrew, uh, he said, "Hi, Steve. I'm not a super tech, but I love the podcast for all the great information and news you and Leo provide. To get right to it, I have had a hard drive that apparently died on me about six years ago." Multiple attempts were made to recover the data as it had three years of family photos, including one of my son's births and two years of his infancy. The only other option I felt I had was to send the drive off and pay a large sum to have the data recovered. I figured maybe in the future someday I could do this as money was short currently. I've been a listener for a, for a year now, and I figured, what the heck? Let's try it. I purchased Spinrite and began the recovery process. The scan ran for approximately two weeks. And now, you know, I'll just remind people that's like, you know, a worst case scenario. Spinrite will work as long as it has to to do the recovery. Um, normally, it's two hours, but it, you know, it can be two weeks if there's like lots of extensive damage. And he said, I assumed, quote, it's probably not going to work, unquote. When the scan finally finished, I connected it as a secondary drive to my PC. The drive appeared and the data was now accessible. Three exclamation points. I immediately copied over all the data. I put together a slideshow of our precious photos and ran it when my wife was passing by the computer and realized what had happened the biggest smile and streaming tears came to her face <laughs> thank you so much for saving us That's hundreds great. if not thousands of dollars and making a very memorable moment in our lives she cried so in joy not andrew not sadness tears of happiness yeah. so thanks for sharing that andrew we're going to get to the meat of the matter in just a second, the anonymous threat. But, I, you know, I thought given our discussion of privacy, I should mention that after this show, we're going to do This Week in Google with Jeff Jarvis and Drina Trapani. And our guest uh, actually has written a book about this subject. It's called uh, The Consent of the Network, The Worldwide Struggle for Internet Freedom. And one of the topics is, she says, uh, 
Um, it's time to fight for our rights before they're sold, legislated, programmed, and engineered away. She's talking about privacy, among other things. Uh, and so this will be a good uh, a good discussion. Rebecca McKinnon will join us on This Week in Google in about uh, 20 minutes for those of you watching live. And for those of you listening, uh, that would be a good one to download if you want to hear more about this debate. Uh, Very cool. Yeah, fascinating subject, I think. Very cool. Anonymous, okay, so they're after we us. Don't, we don't take anonymous lightly. No. Um, they did actually take down the CIA.gov website um, earlier this month. Uh, the, on February 10th uh, was the, the news about that. And when I saw the news, I immediately went to, I think I saw it um, in real time via Twitter. And I went there and the site, sure enough, was down. And it was down <sighs> for a while. Um, the Associated Press on Friday the 17th reported that Anonymous had breached the United States Federal Trade Commission's Consumer Protection Business Center website, as well as a National Consumer Protection Week website. Both sites were temporarily replaced by a, quote, violent German language video, unquote, focused on the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement, the ACTA that we've talked about. So, you know, I mean, these guys are the real deal. And the Wall Street Journal on February 21st um, quoted the director of the NSA, the National Security Agency, warning about the growing strength of the group Anonymous. And in the Wall Street Journal article, they wrote, the group has never listed a power blackout as a goal. That's what this NSA guy was worried about, was that they, would, they were acquiring the ability to access the United States power grid and, and take parts of it offline. Um, so he says the group has the, the the Wall Street Journal article continues the group has never listed a power blackout as a goal, but some federal officials believe anonymous is headed in a more disruptive direction. An attack on a network would be consistent with recent public claims and threats by the group. Last week, for instance, anonymous announced a plan to shut down the internet on March 31st, which it calls Operation Global Blackout. And of course, as I mentioned at the top of the show, they've taken Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and other payment providers offline and so forth. So in this paste bin posting, I created a, a short link, a bit.ly link, uh, using this security now episode number. So it's bit.ly slash sn341. That'll get you there if you're curious. Um, I won't read it in detail because um, I don't want to just don't take up the time for that. But essentially, this appears to be a, a legitimate posting from Anonymous saying to protest SOPA, Wall Street, our irresponsible leaders and the beloved bankers who are starving the world for their own selfish needs out of sheer sadistic fun, comma, on March 31st, Anonymous will shut the Internet down. Why, you kids? Yeah, I know. Those pesky Anonymous guys. Then they go into how they're going to pull this off, which is what I wanted to talk about. Well, it's so interesting because, yeah. uh, in fact, we, we have identified this, uh, this vulnerability before as a, as a significant yes. vulnerability on the Internet. Yes. Now... The, the beauty, as we all know, 
of the internet is that it isn't located in one place. It is inherently individual servers linked to the users through this completely heterogeneous network of of interconnected links and routers where the routers know how to send the traffic in both directions through a series of hops between any two points. So it's literally, it's a, just a huge grid of interconnectivity. No single central location. The one part of the net which is arguably centralized in a sense is the DNS root servers. DNS, and we've talked about this too, is inherently a hierarchy. There are the, the, the root servers, which, which are the, the one place that other DNS servers can turn or, or users can turn if they want to sort of start looking for a website. There's, there needs to be an anchor. And so these, these 13 root servers which are named a.root-servers.net through m.root-servers.net so in in short they're they're known as the a through m root servers that's you know there's 13 letters a b c d e and so forth to m that's 13 13 was chosen just due to some technical record size limitations so there's no reason Thirteen. It is not twelve or fourteen. It's just or something or more. It's just that that's how many conveniently fit technically uh, in terms of the the size of their name in the record. So, so the argument is that, or or the reason the DNS name servers come to people's attention, the reason if, if this is a legitimate. Posting, and I should mention that that this operation blackout. If you do, if you search Twitter for pound sign, you know, a hashtag uh, op. Uh, I had it written down here. I'm not seeing it in front of me. Op. Oh wait, oh, it is in the. It's in the paste bin posting, so I can find it easily there. Op. Oh yeah, it's hashtag op global blackout. Not surprisingly, um, you can find. A lot of dialogue, which has occurred recently about this. And as you and I were saying at the top of the show, Leo, the problem with anonymous being anonymous is that they're anonymous. And so someone can post something saying that they're from anonymous, and then anonymous can say, no, that's not us. They're, that's somebody else. So there's some argument about whether this is bogus or not, Um and and I'm taking the position, well, whether it is or not, March 31st will be interesting to see if anything happens. And it may well be that nothing will happen. Why can 13 servers withstand a big attack? The number one reason that 13 DNS servers aren't going to be affected is that they're aren't actually 13 root DNS servers. There are 13 IP addresses, and that's very different than 13 servers 
Because, for example, just one of the servers, I happen to know that the I server, i.rootservers.net, exists in 25 different countries. Through, and this is, this is achieved through something known as Anycast, which is not a technology we've talked about yet. We've talked about multicast, which is a way of having an IP address sent simultaneously to, to many different recipients. Or, or, or another way of thinking about it is it's, it's a way of, of many recipients all asking for the same content. And instead of the server having to individually send it to individual IP recipients, they can send it to a multicast IP address and <clears throat> and it just it's automatically routed to many different locations. Anycast is different than that. The way Anycast works is that is that individual routers and we talked about, you know, we already know routers are, are the way the Internet routes traffic spread all over the globe. Individual routers have an ability to send traffic based on an IP address to the closest matching server. Now, we're used to thinking of IP addresses as being unique. So... You know, Leo, you've got an IP address for twit.tv. Right. And you know, that's one that that that's a server located in a in a location and it's like a any, phone number. Any, Everybody has to have a unique phone number or you'd have collisions. Every server right. has to have a unique IP address. However, the technology, for example, that content delivery networks are using is anycast. Right. The idea being that if you're an if you're a content delivery network, You'd like to be able to have servers stationed on both coasts, east coast and west coast, maybe in the middle, uh, on other continents on the globe. And you'd want the same, the, the same URL being used right. by different people anywhere in the world to somehow find the content closest to you. And that we use and, that as well for del content delivery. So when you watch our stream or you listen, Cashflyer, Ustream or Justin TV, all the various uh, providers we use, almost all use CDNs. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so do the root servers. There are not 13 root servers. There are hundreds of actual physical root servers scattered all over the world. So, so the, the, the DNS root is actually much stronger than people tend to believe. Just as I said, just the I, the I IP address. You, if, what's funny is that the root servers are the one thing, if you think about it, you cannot access by name. That is, yes, they have names, i.rootservers.net, but... You can't use that to access them because, because they're the root of DNS. So, so the, um, the one thing that you, you ultimately need is their IP addresses. Um, if you have to go all the way back up the hierarchy 
to them in order to start looking up, for example, the the address of of a com server, then the address of a of a like grc.com, and then and to, to actually get our IP address. So the I root server is 192.36.148.17. That's set in stone. Those those 13 IPs are never going to change because they are hardwired into the internet all over the place. But the actual servers behind those IPs are free to come and go as they please. That you know right now there's hundreds. It would be easy over time. There's probably even more, I mean, like many, many hundreds. They're they're easy to set up. You you create one. You put it in place. You essentially broadcast your IP to a router, and then if you're closer to that router than another server at the same IP. The AnyCast technology, actually it's BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol that, that routers use for communicating their routing tables, the router will go, oh, I've got somebody closer. And so anybody, any traffic coming through that router to that common IP will end up going to the shortest server. So what this means is that an attack against the, the DNS route even if the attack, first of all, it would have to be attacking all 13 IPs. It would have to also be attacking all of these hundreds of actual physical servers hiding behind those IPs. And the only way to do that is to be attacking from all possible locations in the world. Because the only way to get to those physical servers is to be physically close to those physical servers. Now, I have to say, we don't know. No one knows truly whether it's possible to hold them all offline. You, you have to attack them. You have to flood them so much that they're not able to deliver results. Arguably, you have to flood the links coming into them, or maybe the routers on those links. Because it might be that the routers are less capable of handling a flood of small queries than the servers themselves are. We really don't know. But remember, caching is another aspect of DNS that DNS absolutely relies on. These root servers are actually not very loaded most of the time, because all they're being asked for is the is the IPs of the um, the second level domains, the so-called GTLDs, the .com, .net, um, and so forth servers. So those records in the root servers have multi-day expirations, maybe even longer than that, maybe weeks. So, so the point is that the only time somebody refers to them is when the, the com or net or org, you know, that second level domain record that they have expires, causing them to need to update that. The reason those don't last forever is that allows the com and net and org and so forth servers to move around if they need to and for that cached IP address for them 
to ultimately expire, but it doesn't expire immediately. So, so that's a huge, that's an important distinction. When you flood Visa or MasterCard, you're flooding one server and you're holding that site offline immediately for the duration of the flood. If you were able to flood these many hundreds of root DNS servers, nothing at all would happen for a while. Um, it would, and this is what we've talked about before, as you mentioned, Leo, it's necessary to, in order for individual end users to feel the effect, which apparently is what this, if this is anonymous and not a bogus posting, then and they're trying, obviously, to get end users to feel, to believe that the internet is down, that they've taken the internet down. The only way to have that happen is to keep all of these, all of these hundreds of actual physical DNS servers offline until the DNS cache drains. And that's at until, least a day or two. Oh, many days, yeah. probably. Yes, you know, for example, when when I have needed my own IP address to be more agile, I've decreased the cache time so that I could change my IP address and and users in the Internet would have their records updated relatively quickly. But normally you run with multi-day, sometimes seven days. Seven days is quite common. You run, 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 run with a seven-day um expiration because there's just no reason for it to be any shorter you'd rather people got to your website quicker because remember if you have to do a dns lookup that delays access to your website until your browser is able to to perform a multi-level dns query get the new ip if it is new and then access you but if it's not going to be new you'd rather let your dns record last a long time right. Because right. that's going to help people get to you more quickly. Yeah, yeah. So there really is a there, there's an incentive for the cache being as long as practical, and it's typically a long time. So it is it is in the first place we really don't know today if a what the effect of a high bandwidth, high transaction rate, globally dispersed denial you know distributed denial of a service attack against those 13 IPs would be we know that in 07 there was a, a denial of a service attack against against the DNS route and a few of the weaker IPs were hurt they several of them crashed several of them were offline but that was like 4 out of 13 the other third, the, the 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 balance of that, the other nine sailed through it without a single glitch because they were on strong connections with strong routers in front of them, and they themselves were strong servers. And so, you know, we have some calibration, and you could argue because this is understood to be the one Achilles heel of the entire internet because of the nature of this one focus point that you know that was in 07, so five years ago. Since then. I'm sure these things are even stronger than they were. And there's just been more growth of the Internet. There's more root servers, more widely distributed. Um, I really do think we're probably okay. But there is one very cool site that I will leave you with 
Um, I didn't make a shortcut for it. Um, I will create one for next week. It's There's a DNS monitoring page. Uh, if you're looking at the show notes, Leo, you can see it there at the end. On March 31st, it's cymru.com slash monitoring slash DNS S-U-M-M. That's the page. It's a very nice real-time display that shows the health of the the DNS root servers as viewed from many different locations around the globe, showing the, the root response time and a bunch of other information also. Um, so I don't think... Pretty much green, but this would be fun to go look at uh, on March 31st yep. anyway, just to see. Yep. Yeah. I don't think anything is probably going to happen. Um, and also... Why March 31st? Well, it occurs to me that's the day before April, April Fool's. Fools. So if, if they were going to do it on April Fool's, and then if they said they were going to do it on April Fool's, then right. everyone would think, wouldn't take this very seriously. Well, so they did it one day before. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's so that the net will be down on the first. I don't know. Um, but... I don't even know that this is a, a legitimate posting, but well, in fact, uh, one of the Twitter account. We, the problem with being anonymous is who no one knows who's in charge, right? But there is a Twitter a post from yesterday saying it's a it's a fake operation. But who knows? You just don't know. That could yeah, be disinformation. It could be somebody else yeah. claiming that it's a fake. Yeah. yeah. And and by the way, this is nothing new. We're not telling them anything. Everybody doesn't know. There's a whole Wikipedia page devoted to how to do this. Yep. Um, that talks a lot about it and uh, even mentions Operation Global Blackout 2012. It's already been updated. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In, in order to, to uh, cover this. It's, it's, uh, and, and, and Boing Boing posted an article, all of this comes from the chat room, thank you, chat room, that uh, points out, probably shouldn't make too big a deal of this, but the people who would be using this low orbit ion cannon software to do this DDoS are, in fact, Blasting their IP address out to the public as well. <laughs> so, good luck with that. <clears throat> yeah, they, they they talk in their posting about a so-called reflection attack, right. where they would send queries to DNS servers, and the DNS servers uh, with a spoofed IP, a spoofed source IP, so that those those DNS servers would then bounce that request to the root server so they would be spoofing the root server ip so that the secondary server would think that it was the root server making a query which is bizarre because the root servers would never do that right and in fact that would be an easy thing to uh, thwart yes all you'd have to do is block root server queries those from those 13 ips block those incoming and then your server would never bounce the traffic back back to the root right so the Oh, and the other thing is um, it's not clear um, what they would be asking because as the as DNS drains out, then those servers would have to query the the routes in order to get the addresses to query. I mean, anyway, it's sort of convoluted and, you know, it's chasing its tail. I, I don't – it's probably unlikely anything's going to happen. It's also really not clear how this makes sense. Like – you know, anonymous is pro-internet, but anti some factions of the internet, like anti-SOPA and RIA and so forth. Um, you know, so why does taking the entire net down even serve their ends? Uh, it's not clear. 
probably really doesn't. I think it's just bogus, but who knows? Yeah, but I certainly interesting, wouldn't. interesting topic for the show. Interesting to consider indeed. where we are. Steve Gibson, I know where he is. He's at grc.com, kids, and uh, that's where you'll find Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, grc.com. It's also where you can post questions if you've got them, and next episode will be a Q&A episode, so this will yep. be a good time to go to grc.com slash feedback. Uh, he also has lots of free stuff there, including 16 kilobit versions of the show and transcriptions if you like to read along. Uh, and his show notes as well. You can also get the audio and video of the show from our uh, site, TWIT.TV, and wherever greater podcasts are offered for free. Uh, do get those. Uh, get the subscription. That way you don't miss an episode. You can have a collection of Security Now episodes on your on your system. Uh, let's see. What else? Oh, we do the show every uh, Wednesday, if we aren't talking about coffee, at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern at uh, twit.tv. Do tune in live, and uh, if you miss it, don't worry. You can always download the show, except for the coffee stuff at uh, at the site. And uh, we might be changing our schedule for March 7th, because uh, as the rumors are that that will be the iPad 3 announcement. You have been paying attention. That's right. Yep. Uh, we talked about that yesterday on a Mac break, and so we're just waiting for the invites to go out. And if they do, we'll we'll just flop, flip flop. Uh, yep. The Tuesday Mac break weekly will be on Wednesday, and you'll be on Tuesday. But that's not uh, next week; that's the week after. So exactly, we'll know. But I think we'll know by next week. Usually, Apple sends out invites about a week ahead of time. Thank you. Actually, you know what? Next uh, uh, next Wednesday is the day that uh, Microsoft ships uh, the consumer beta of Windows Eight. Ah. So that might be kind of interesting. Yeah. We're talking about that. Thank you, Steve Gibson. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And we'll see you next week on Security. Thanks, Leo. Bye-bye. Security.